in trying to understand the creation week, the creation week narrative that we have here in Genesis chapter 1, perspective can make all the difference. For years, most of the interpretations that I have come across of Genesis chapter 1 have been from a more, shall we say, cosmological perspective. This is the perspective that God is in heaven and he is doing these things and and there's kind of this cosmic space that is kind of separating and so you can see God in heaven and he's doing all this stuff up on the earth. And this is the perspective that you will see in many teachings, many commentaries, and, and there's nothing wrong with that perspective. It's a, it's a great perspective. But let me submit to you tonight that changing the perspective, changing your perspective, can bring new understanding. When you look at the week of creation, here's a good question. Where does everything begin and where do things happen? as we see them playing out in this week of creation. First, things begin just above the waters. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago when we were in Genesis chapter one, verse two. We actually left it off with the spirit of God hovering over the deep, the darkness over the face of the deep and the spirit hovering over the waters. And so this actually becomes the perspective of the creation week. When you look to understand this description of creation, this is an important piece of information to notice. What is the perspective of these creative days? The perspective of creation is from the surface of the earth. From the surface of the earth. The text of Genesis chapter 1 is written as if from an observer from the surface of the earth. The perspective is really less cosmological and more terrestrial. When you read and study through this first chapter of the Bible with this perspective in mind, it can bring some clarity and some understanding to the text as you read it, some understanding for the reader. In Genesis chapter 1, 1, the world was created out of nothing. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we find that world in chaos, in devastated state, in need of attention. We left the earth, really in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, in that form, without form and void. Remember that phrase, and we learned that Hebrew phrase, tohu vabohu, tohu vabohu, without form and void. If the earth would once once more facilitate the purpose of God, it would need to be brought out of this state from chaos to order. But in order to bring this about, there would have to be a power capable to do it. There would need to be a power involved to bring the earth out of this state of chaos to a place of order. The earth had laid in a state of waste, emptiness, without habitation, you could say. And the only thing to change that would be the almighty God. There are things that can only be accomplished by the power of God. Amen? There are things that only God can do. Only God could bring this order 
out of chaos. And so here in Genesis 1, verse 3, we see the foundation of power. We see the foundation of power. Tonight we're going to look at day one of the creation week. And we're going to look at this foundation of power. So we're going to read this section, which is day one of the creation week. And we're laying out this theme brought forth, the foundation of power. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter one, verse three, and let's read it. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So we're laying out this theme in Genesis chapter 1, 3 through 5, this day one, if you will, day one of the creation week. And really what we're going to see is the foundation of power, the foundation of power. And what we're going to learn and what we're going to see is that God's word is power. Amen? God's word is power. Let me ask you a question. What is the greatest power in the universe? What is the greatest power in the universe? Notice I didn't say who was the greatest power in the universe. We can answer that one quite easily, right? It's Yahweh God is the greatest power in the universe. But the question is a little different. What is the greatest power in the universe? And let me submit to you that it is the word of God. God said here in verse three, he said, let there be light and there was light. Now this is the first direct quote of God in the Bible. This is his opening statement, if you will, to, to the world. God said, let there be light and there was light. If you wanna know about God, who is he? What is he? What, what is he like? What is he about? You can start by looking at the first, his first recorded words in his book. And God said, let there be light. Let there be light. First, I want to talk to you about this. God speaks. Our God, the God of the Bible, is a God who speaks. God is a spirit and a mind. And minds convey information in speech, in text, in coherent code. One of the things that I think that is the most difficult for the atheist, the naturalist, the evolutionist, is where did the information in the universe, where did it come from? Not, not just where did the universe come from, not just where did the earth come from, but where did the, the information that is in the universe, where did that come from? It seems to be that the universe operates according to laws and specifications that can be understood in mathematical equations. And then when you get into the realm of biology, discover a very detailed and specific code in the form of DNA that tabulates information for life. The DNA code, I think, is a revolutionary thing to look at because it states that 
there's information involved. And really, the, the question then becomes that information, where does it come from? Information comes from a mind. Amen? Information comes from a mind. And so this is a very interesting thing to look at. Very interesting concept. Now, when you come to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, what is, what is the condition of the earth again? The, the condition of the earth, the status of the earth, is that it is in darkness. It's in complete darkness. Why is it in darkness? Well, it's, it's in darkness because it's shrouded in a blanket of water. It says that water was covering the earth. And as I said last week, it doesn't tell us what form the water is in. I, I personally believe, looking at verse 2, that you could say that probably every form of water that, that exists, that, that that is what was involved in covering the earth. So all the various forms of water are covering the earth. We learn from Job chapter 38 that he literally wrapped the earth in a, like a blanket of of clouds and, and water. And, and this, this wrapping of the earth, this covering of the earth in this water caused darkness. So it's shrouded in a blanket of water in every form, liquid, solid, gas, plasma. Yes, there are four states of matter. And this resulted in darkness. The four, the four states of matter concerning water Water as a liquid, ice, gas, or fog, and its plasmic form, whatever that is, right? <laughs> the plasmic form of water. And this resulted, this is what resulted in darkness to be upon the face of the deep. And so imagine it, just for a minute. I think it's important. We've got to imagine the state of the earth, picture yourself there. We left it off. The Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the water. So just picture that if you can. The, the earth, there's darkness on the face of the deep. There's, there's no light to can penetrate to the surface of the earth. Just darkness. It's just dark. And left to itself, nothing would happen. And what does God do? God speaks. God speaks. And he brings that information to deal with the situation. He brings his word. He cuts through the darkness with the fiery sword of his word. Amen? Where'd you get that? Well, I got that from the last book of the Bible. Amen? Because there's a vision of Christ and the vision that John the Apostle had of Christ, the flaming sword coming out of the mouth of God. And so the, the, the word of God is this thing that is powerful. Amen? And you can see that from the, the, from the opening verses to the closing verses of, of this book. The word of God is power. It's power. Now we're told, well, what, what does he say? How does he cut through the darkness? He says, let there be light. Let there be light. And so we come to this concept in, in, in the book, in the Bible, the concept of light. We're told that God's word is light. So God's word is a light. And he said, let there be light. Amen? It can kind of be difficult to separate his word from the character. 
his character because he is light, his word is light, and he says, let there be light, and there was light. The word of God is. John's gospel begins in similar form to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And John opens his gospel with this same idea. So God said, let there be light. And it begs a question. What is light? And what does it do? Amen? What is light and what does it do? There have been different theories down through the centuries about light. What is it? What form does it take? Different theories. Isaac Newton proposed that light was a stream of particles. And this is known as the corpuscular theory of light, the stream of particles. Then along came a man named Thomas Young, and he proposed the wave theory of light due to the, ref the reflection and refraction capabilities of light. He said, well, you can reflect it, it can refract. Therefore, it's, it, 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 it proposed this idea, light seemed to be a, behave more like a wave. So you have the corpuscular theory, the particle theory, you have the wave theory of light. Then another man came along, James Clark Maxwell, right? He discovered, among many things, that light as proposed light as an electromagnetic wave. And then he died in 1879, and then in the early 1900s, Max Planck comes along. And he misapplied some equations in running some tests and running some equations with light, and he, mis he actually misapplied some equations, which turned out to work the way he misapplied them, and, and it led to a revival of the corpuscular theory. Planck discovered energy is not continuous. It is found only in discrete quanta. And so there's these individual bundles of light. So it brought revival to this idea that it's the, the particle, the, the, the corpuscular theory. It's not continuous. It's individual. It's, it's digital, if you will. Individual bundles which is what opened the door to the paradoxical world of quantum physics. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in here just a second, just in quantum physics, but I got an awesome uh, idea for the existence of God that comes out of quantum physics and what we learn from light, and it's really astounding and great. So, but before we get there, so you had Planck, and he kind of was considered the father of quantum physics by some. But then you had this father and son, J.J. Thompson, in 1906. J.J. Thompson won the Nobel Prize for proving electrons were particles, that light was, was a particle. Then in 1937... His son was awarded the Nobel Prize for proving electrons were waves. So he kind of proved the opposite thing of his father. And so what scientists have come to discover is that you have this wave-particle duality, really, of light. That there's a duality in it. 
and, and this is actually this wave particle kind of duality is the central paradox in quantum physics. Now, there's, there is some compelling evidence that quanta only manifest as particles when we are looking at them. So they're a wave, and then when there's a, a human observer to the wave, that, that, that then becomes a particle, okay? So it's very interesting. So I want to take you through. This is a quantum physics 101, okay? Quantum physics 101. All right, for some of you, some of you are like, what? No. You know, but some of you are like, okay, bring it on, bring it on, all right? Okay. There is wave, there is wave of the quanta. And think of the quanta as the individualized bundles or the particles, okay? So think of the quanta as the digitized bundles, if you will. So th there is a wave of the quanta, and this wave can be seen as a wave of possible states, possible locales. Okay, so there's this idea that in the wave, there's, there's, a, there's this myriad of possibilities of what it can be. Okay, of what this thing can be. What scientists have discovered is that when there is an observer observing the wave, the wave collapses to a single state, to a location. Before, in its waveform, they have discovered that there's actually all kinds of crazy stuff going on. There's actually that th light photons actually exist in, in a non-local state, okay? There's a concept of non-locality. They've actually discovered that in this form that all the light photons of the universe actually know each other, okay? So it's, it's, it's an incredible, incredible thing. But when there's an observer of the wave, the wave collapses into an actual state, if you will. So it, this is an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. It's actually said that consciousness causes the collapse of the wave function. So what I want to talk to you about is this wave function collapse. This wave function collapse. In quantum mechanics, wave function collapse is said to occur when a wave function initially in a superposition of several states appears to reduce to a single state. And how? By observation. Okay, you follow me? Okay, so the wave is several states, but when there's an observer present, the wave collapses to a single state. And how does it happen? Because there's someone watching. Because there's someone watching. Okay, so follow this. This is unbelievable stuff. It's actually said that consciousness causes the collapse of the wave function. A conscious observer. So this goes to the very nature of reality. This is where the famous question associated with George Berkeley's research comes in. If a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? Right? The question is a rebuttal to some of Berkeley's assertions, but with that we seem to know about quantum physics. It's a good question. How is it a good question? Can something exist without it being observed, without it being perceived? This is the fundamental question of quantum physics. Is the sound only a sound if someone hears it? The most immediate philosophical topic that riddle, the riddle introduces involves the existence of the tree and the sound it produces outside of human per perception. If no one is around to see, hear, touch, or smell the tree, how could it be said to exist? And what this does is it, it brings us down 
to what I believe is an awesome argument for the existence of God right out of the center of quantum physics. How's that, you might ask? <laughs> if you need an observer to initiate the wave function collapse of any quantum stuff, you need an observer to initiate the collapse of the wave of that observer's existence. Okay? So I want you to follow me on this. If someone is observing a, a light photon, okay, is it a wave, is it a particle? There's a wave. It's going to collapse upon the observation. So they're going to cause that to exist in a state. But if, if they're going to collapse that wave, that observer would need another observer to observe them so that their states would collapse to a single state. And that observer of that observer would need another observer and so on and so forth, and so that you would have this regression of observers to continually collapse the wave. And so then what ends up happening? If you have this continual regression of observers to collapse the wave, and you, let's call that a set of observers, you need something, someone, a consciousness outside the set to collapse the wave of the entire set. And so what do you need for the whole thing to exist? You need an ultimate observer, an ultimate consciousness. Amen? And that's what we call them, ultimate observer. Let me explain it to you like this. If you've got, if you, anybody ever set up dominoes? And you set them up on the table and you're going you're gonna to set them up and it's going to go around and do all this stuff. And people have filled rooms full of this, right? To do all these domino falling experiments. So... If the domino is going to fall, if the last one's going to fall, if the whole set's going to fall, you need someone to actually push the first one over. And this is what they've actually discovered in quantum physics. And they're actually, when this first came out and was being discovered, there were some scientists that actually didn't know what to do with, with it and literally... Um, they were just, you know, it's, 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 it's freaking out. And there's all kinds of articles. I just actually read an article this week on, on this. And it's, some of it is kind of like, you know, mind-blowing in gymnastics. But are, are you guys, are, did you follow me on this? So, so in other words, for the entire set of observers, for the waves of all those observers to collapse, you need something, you need an observer outside the set. And it, it just, it's, it's almost like a lockdown, it's almost like a lockdown proof. Why? Because it can't be some inanimate object. It has to be a conscious observer. This is, this is absolutely powerful stuff. It's coming right out of the center of quantum physics and science. And this is absolutely incredible. It's power. It's awesome. We know what this ultimate conscious observer, we know him. What's his name? His name is Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, the, the God that in Genesis 1-1 created the heavens and the earth, created the universe. And so this power, this light, this collapse of the wave, this light that appeared, it pierces the darkness. Amen? So God's word is power. God's word pierces the darkness. And it's exactly what God's word does. It is a light that pierces the darkness. The word of God is said to, in the Psalms, light our paths. 
right? But it first must pierce our darkness. Before it's going to light our path, it first must pierce our darkness. And then you go to John chapter 1. As was already discussed, as was brought up. You see the apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he picks up on the theme from Genesis 1 in beginning his gospel. If you want to turn there, John chapter 1, I'm going to be reading the first five verses. But you have to see this to understand what John is saying in his gospel as he's opening up his gospel presentation of Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so if you're going to understand John's gospel from a theological messaging standpoint, you've got to understand the concepts and the themes of where he's drawing from Genesis 1. The earth laid in darkness, emptiness, and void, and God said, let there be light. And here the earth once again, in a spiritual sense, sat in that same darkness, and God said again, by his word, the logos of God, he said... Let there be light, and there was light. And the light shined in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. This light invading the darkness becomes the picture of the word, the logos of God, invading the darkness of men. This piercing of the darkness by the coming of the Messiah was foretold by the prophets. It was also mentioned earlier Isaiah chapter 9, it was read a little bit later in those verses, but I want to bring you to the first two verses of that chapter. And this is what it says, and you'll see this up on the screen. The prophet Isaiah, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her her who is distressed when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So what is this saying? This is the prophet Isaiah talking about the condition of God's people, the the chosen people, and there's a a gloom. And there's an inference to that first chapter of Genesis, the darkness that was over the face of the deep. So you see this gloom, and he says, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her. This gloom is going to be dealt with. This gloom is going to go away. Why? As when he first lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Next slide. And afterward, more heavily, oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Next slide. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So what is actually being said? There was a destruction that came on that land of Zebulun and Naphtali. You say, who's Zebulun? And who's Naphtali? These were of the 12 tribes of Israel. These were two of the tribes. You should know, these are like two of the counties of the land of Israel. It's like Brevard County in Volusia. If Brevard, Palm Beach, yeah. 
These are two of the counties. These were two of the, the tribes that inherited that land. And it was the land that was up and around and surrounding the, the area of Galilee. We saw that in that middle verse. And afterward, more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in, Gentile, in uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. So there was a destruction that came to that area. What was that destruction? Well, if you know your OT history, you know that God brought destruction by the hand of the Assyrians to the northern kingdom, specifically to this area. And this happened before, remember the the kingdom was divided. The, the, The house of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The ten tribes of the north, the two tribes of the south. And God brought destruction to both of them, but the one he brought destruction to first by the hands of the Assyrians was this northern kingdom. There are two dates that you need to know about in OT history, 722 and 586. 722, God brought destruction to Galilee, to Zebulun, to Naphtali, to that area around the Sea of Galilee by the hand of the Assyrians. They were destroyed. They were brought into captivity at the hand of the Assyrians. So this area of Zebulun and Naphtali was under a gloom. And the imagery is that of the same gloom, the same darkness that was on the face of the deep that we see in Genesis 1, verse 2. But what happened to these people that sat in Zebulun and Naphtali? The text says it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And so what we see happening to the earth physically, we see that being foretold what's going to happen to those who will come out of a darkness and gloom and be brought by the light of God, by the spirit of God, by the word of God, piercing their darkness and being called out from that state of darkness into life, into light. And we sang all that before the service. In case you... what were we singing? That's exactly what was that, that lyric and exactly what I said was exactly what we sang in several of the songs. And this is what's happening. This is what's happening. The people that walked in darkness will see a great light. The gospel writer Matthew, John's not the only one. All these guys know what's going on. They know how the Bible's laid out. They know what the themes are. Under the inspiration of the, of the same Holy Spirit, Matthew says this in Matthew 4, verse 12. If you want to turn over there, I will not have it on the screen for you. We're going to le- read a couple of verses there. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, actually. And this is what the text says. It says, now when Jesus heard, so, so Jesus, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come and pierce the darkness of that gloom upon Galilee, Right? That's what was said 800 years before Christ showed up, right? Can you follow me? So what, so Isaiah, I'm taking you through here. One, one of the things that you're going to understand is when we, we go through this Genesis, you're literally going to come away with an understanding of what the scripture actually says of what it's all about from cover to cover. It's not just about Genesis and the week of creation. It's, this is the whole thing. This is the whole thing. And a sure foundation will be laid. Amen. So this is what Matthew says. Isaiah foretold. Now Jesus, the Messiah, is on the scene. Pick it up, Matthew 4, verse 12. It says this. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Okay, here we go. Where? 
to Zebulun and Naphtali. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, now here's where he's quoting directly out of Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wow. This is, this is like, you know, jumping glory hallelujah stuff here. This is really, you know, this is what this is. And one of the things that I think is interesting, one of the things that I think is interesting is that the first area that was destroyed because of a rebellion was the first area that the Christ went into to preach that the kingdom was at hand. They were the first to receive the good news of the kingdom. And to me, there's, there's just all kinds of powerful ramifications wrapped up in that concept. So God's word is power. God's word pierces the darkness. And thirdly tonight, God's word separates God's word separates. Go back to Genesis 1. Verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And so the evening and the morning were the first day. God's word separates. Now what happened, when now we're back in Genesis and we're looking at what physically happened in Genesis chapter 1. Now what happened physically is that God let light break through the darkness that was covering the earth. Remember we referenced the verse in Job that the earth was covered by a blanket of water, of this cloud, the vapor, the, all of it, ice even. God let light break through the darkness and the layers of waters that covered the earth. Now, a guy that I mentioned, I believe last week, is a, he's an astrophysicist, he's a Christian, and his name is Dr. Hugh Ross, and he presents a model of what happened on day one here are these verses. The, the earth was in darkness. In other words, there was no light that could penetrate to the surface. You have waters over the face of the deep, waters in every form covering the earth so that no light could penetrate to the surface past this, this, this uh, blanket, if you will, that God talks about that he covered the earth with in, in, in Job 38. And God enabled the light to penetrate the darkness of the earth. He said, let there be light. Let there, let there be light to this earth. Let, the, let there be light that would penetrate this, this shroud, this covering, this blanket that is covering the earth. Let there be light that would penetrate and pierce this darkness and come all the way to the, to the, to the surface of the earth. It, because remember, it didn't just say that there was waters covering the earth. 
There, it said that it was so, there was waters covering so much so that it was darkness. It, it wasn't just like, oh, well, there's water everywhere. No, there's so much of whatever it is, this covering, these layers, there was ice, water, cloud layers that went up, I, I don't know how high. It was kind of like what happened was, well, here's how Dr. Ross describes it. God enabled the light to penetrate the darkness of the earth's atmosphere. This caused the atmosphere to go from, a, from an opaque or dark uh, atmosphere to what was really a translucent atmosphere. From darkness to light, but still no visibility to the heavens. It was kind of like going from uh, a darkness with a layer, a covering so dense that there was absolute darkness to the translucence of a cloudy day or an overcast day. Or... As we, as we would say in California, there was a marine layer. It was a nice marine layer. Light is possible, but the atmosphere is translucent. There is separation of light and darkness now. Before there was just darkness. Before the light was al allowed to, to penetrate through, through this gloom, there was no separation. There was darkness. But now because the light has been has been brought to the surface of the earth. Now there is a separation of the light. There's a separation of light and darkness now. And the light he called day. And the darkness he called night. He called the light day. The light as it would make its way to the surface. And when it was dark, it was night. The light he called day, the darkness he called night. And this is really what the word does. It brings separation. Amen. This is the last point. What God's word is, it brings about separation. We see this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where the writer of Hebrews talks about the word, and he talks about the word bringing separation and division. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God is that which is going to bring separation. The word of God physically brought separation and distinction to darkness and light, to day and night. Darkness and light, day and night. The word of God brought that distinction, brought that separation. And just as the word of God, when the word of God comes to us, it brings that same separation. This verse says it's living and powerful, the word of God. We as Christians need to think a little bit more about what the, the, the word of God is that, 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 that we have in, in, in this book. That, that, that this, is, this is not like any other book. The word of God is living and powerful and is sharp. It's active and is sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and it pierces. It pierces and it separates, even to the division of soul and spirit. You say, where's that division? Where's that separation? Well, the word of God will separate it. <laughs> the word of God will cut through to the separation of that. Maybe the soul of your self-conscious state has is, is got some problems. Well, God will bring some separation to that which is your soul, that which is your spirit, that which is the totality of your existence. God's word is powerful. 
to the separation of joints and marrow, it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's why when we come to the word, when the word is spoken, are not, the, are not our hearts laid bare before the word? Amen. The word of God is what divides our walk as a believer. It's what separates us in this walk, in this world. When you get to the dietary laws in Leviticus, Leviticus 11, we're not going to go there tonight, okay? Just referencing it, okay? It's just already too much. You know, we've got wave function collapse and all kinds of stuff. Too much to go to the dietary laws in Leviticus. <clears throat> but the animals that could, be, that could be eaten in Israel, according to the dietary laws, had to, they had to do two things. They had to chew the cud which is basically a process that certain animals have where they chew on grass and then they swallow it and it goes down into one of their stomachs and then they bring it back up and they chew on it some more and then they do it and they keep on doing it. Cows do this. That's why it was okay for them to eat cow, beef, lambs, so on and so forth. So they had to chew the cud, but they also had to have a divided hoof. They had to have a divided hoof. So the imagery in the Bible of meditation and where it says meditate on the word is, is this idea of, of chewing on the cud, actually. don't have time to really spell this out. But there's an idea of meditating on the word where, where God told Joshua to meditate in the word day and night, be, being careful not to go to the right or the left, and, and, and being prosperous and successful in, in being obedient to that word. That meditation is it's a picture of that that chewing of the cud. But then that chewing of the cud, if we're chewing on the word, if we're digesting the word, then it brings about that division of the hoof. It brings about the separation of a walk for the Lord. So the word separates the walk of the righteous. The word of God causes us to walk in the light as he is in the light and to be separated from darkness. Amen? Psalm 119, a passage that we've referenced on on Wednesday night in our Psalm series, Psalm 119, verse uh, 130, it says this, the entrance of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. The light of the word, giving understanding, bringing about this separation in our walk. The Christian, the New Testament declares, is a person of the day. Remember, he says that the, the, the light coming to the surface of the earth it, it brought about, and he, and he separated the light. And, and he called the, the light day, and he called the darkness night. The New Testament declares that the person, the Christian, is a person of the day. That we're people of the day, that we're children of the day. This is a theme that the New Testament writers pick up on. There is a contrast of being a person of the day and a person of the night. And so what, what is it that separates that? What is it that separates that out in the life of people? It's the word of God and, and coming to the, the word of the gospel and obeying it and obeying the Lord and obeying Christ and coming to the word to, to digest it, to, to feast upon it, to, 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 to bring it about, to bring it to bear upon our lives and to bring about that separation in our walk. And so as it does, it separates just as God's light separated. He separated the day and the night, the darkness and the light. He separates us and we become children of the day and not children of the night. And this is exactly what Apostle Paul 
says to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, uh, verse 5, you are all sons of light and sons of what? The day. We are not of the night nor darkness. Wow, God's word is that which separates, separates unto himself the people of the light. So, I want to summarize this tonight. <laughs> I want to summarize this tonight. How, how would you summarize it? It's, you know, it's kind of back to the so what question, right? So, so what? You know, so what? Now, I know that some of you, you know, I've brought some things up, and you go home and you Google that and whatever. Some of you are thinking, oh, well, I'm not Googling quantum physics. I'm not Googling, you know, Max Planck or, you know, wave collapse, particles. You know, that's okay. That's okay. Just remember the dominoes. Just remember the dominoes falling, all right? There's got to be somebody to push the first one over. <clears throat> I want to sum this all up in the words of, of a commentator and pastor. His name is John Corson in, in Oregon. And uh, I'm reading this right out of, right out of his commentary. He quotes the verses. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth became wiped out. And the spirit moved on the face of the water. And God said, let there be light. Christian, that's your story. That's your story. You were created in God's image, but sin wiped you out. The Spirit of God moved in through the Word, and you saw the light, and you were born again. Then God separated the darkness from the light, and good things began to happen, not only in creation physically, but in your life personally, because of God's sovereign grace and mercy. Amen? Amen. The foundation of power is the word of God. And what God said to the world first that we have recorded here, God said, let there be light. And there was light.